says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but to the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came to them and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And Father, we... Just humbly pause and ask now as we continue in our worship through our submission of our hearts and minds and soul and spirit to the very word of God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just prepare us each accordingly and that the ministry of your spirit and teaching and Lord, word of wisdom and word of knowledge and prophetic words would just even in this very hour come forth to our hearts that we might each receive what it is that you want to say to us as a part of your church. So speak to us, Lord, bless your word, and may we receive what you're trying to say. And we ask together in Jesus' name expectantly, and everyone said, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. You know, certainly it should be the desire of every believer to really want to see the Lord at work. To see the Lord at work in our lives individually, to see the Lord at work among his church collectively, but I guess therefore a good question becomes, what does that look like? What does it look like when the Lord is at work amongst us? Well, I think this text that we have in front of us this morning pictures very well the Lord at work. We clearly see the Lord at work in various different ways throughout this text that we can take note of this morning. As we come to verse 19 now, if you would draw your attention back there with me, it's almost as if we sort of get a summary statement here in the book of Acts. As we transition, it says, Now those who were scattered, verse 19, after the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So we sort of get a summary here, as I said, of the outreach and ministry efforts of the spread of the gospel 
at the beginning stages of the church, when it was in its early stages, remember this is going back a few chapters, after Stephen, remember, who was a faithful servant of the Lord, and he boldly proclaimed Jesus to the religious leaders, and we saw there in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen, after preaching boldly to the religious leaders, was brutally murdered. He was actually stoned to death at the end of his message, and it seems that after this brutal murder of Stephen and stoning, it was like blood in the water for a bunch of ferocious sharks. Because Acts chapter 8 verse 1, remember, tells us that a great persecution arose at that time against the church. And at that point, historically, it stirred up an intense time of persecution against believers and disciples of Christ. Cruel mistreatment began to take place in such a way that Acts chapter 8 tells us that when this great persecution arose against the church... That followers of Jesus, it says at that point, were scattered all throughout the various regions. Some went to Judea, some to Samaria, and those others pushed out even further. God used, however, that scattering for their safety and welfare to kind of disperse his people in different regions. It was almost like scattering seed. Like God being a farmer, just tossing seed in different directions. God used this for the spread of the gospel to go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. So what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that when his Holy Spirit came upon his people, they were to become his witnesses powerfully. Remember he said in Jerusalem, but then he added in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world, this outward rippling effect as they went to different areas. Well, they weren't doing that too faithfully, so the Lord allowed some intense persecution to be one of the instruments to scatter his people, to bring the gospel to other outlying regions. And here we're told in verse 19, notice the verse, it says, they traveled at this time as, as the persecution arose as far as, and then we're told, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the word at that time. So they went to areas like Phoenicia, which is north of Galilee, up in what area we would refer to as sort of the Tyre and Sidon region, which today would be called modern Lebanon. That's with reference to that area. It says others went as far as Cyprus. Cyprus is an island in the northwest, and it's about 150 miles off the coast uh, there out in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. So others went off and traveled across the sea over to the area of, of Cyprus, preaching the word of the Lord. And others, we're told lastly in verse 19, went as far as Antioch. Now let me just say, there will be a few Antiochs mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, someone who was conquering at that time had a father named Antioch, and he named, as we're told historically, at least upwards to 15 different cities after his father. So when you read Antioch, you always want to kind of quantify this will be Antioch, Syria, and the place where the church of Antioch will be planted. So some went as far as Antioch, and what this is a reference to is about 300 miles northwest of Jerusalem, all the way up into the area, what today would be modern day Turkey. So this is quite a journey up. They went 300 miles all the way up to the area of modern Turkey. And as they went, notice it says they were preaching the word of God, but they remain limited in their outreach group. Do you see what it says there in verse 19, the limitation? It says they preach the word to no one but the Jews 
only. That is, early on, their intentional focus was to find Jews as they went to these different regions to find Jewish people and tell them that Jesus was their Messiah, to explain to them that Jesus was the way to be saved in a right relationship with God. Up to this point in church life, historically, no one had sought to evangelize the Gentile people. That is, those of any other nationality other than Jews. That's what Gentiles means, as we said before, people of other nationalities. Yet we saw in chapters 10 and 11 recently, God has just brought a major shift in the focus of ministry. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, we saw those great events of the saving of many Gentiles at the household of a man named Cornelius. As the Holy Spirit was poured out and many Gentile people in that household got saved and the Spirit of God fell upon them and God was showing and indicated that he wanted all nations to come to know Jesus, that he loved all people of all nationalities and he wanted all nations to be reached. And now here in verse 19, Acts eleven nineteen really is a shift in the book of Acts because this now becomes the first direct efforts, the first direct efforts to evangelize Gentile people, to bring the gospel to the other nations than the Jewish people to in intentionally do that. Remember, Peter did preach at Cornelius' house to a group of Gentiles, but they asked Peter to come. Peter didn't go because he wanted to. He went because a request came for him to come, and then God said, it's okay, I want you to speak to them. This is now the first time we find believers going and actually initiating gospel preaching, initiating evangelism and missionary work among the Gentile people to see them get saved. And we find now the first church plant among the Gentiles the church of Antioch. So up to this point, no one has preached to anyone but Jews only, verse 20, but it says, however, some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who when they had come to Antioch, notice they spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. So again, a reference here to the first pioneering efforts to go into Gentile territory to reach a subculture and a people group that had never yet been reached, the Gentile nations. It says that they, when they got to Antioch, that they focused particularly their evangelism. Some of these men focused their evangelism upon the Hellenist people, seeking to preach Jesus to them. Now, when the Bible refers to the Hellenists, it's a reference to those who would embrace the Greek culture. The Hellenist culture, it's a reference to the customs and the ways of life of the Greeks. Hellenism was heavily spread under Alexander the Great, and he had a heart to cause all people under his time of reign to embrace and adopt the Greek culture, the customs and the ways of life of the Greeks, and even the worship system of their gods that they worshipped and idols. And a small percentage of Jews, which is true, a small percentage of Jews sort of became Hellenistic by embracing some of the customs of the Greek lifestyle. But the majority of those who were Hellenist typically were Gentile people from all different nations who completely embraced the Greek way of life. They fully adopted the customs and ideas of the Greeks, including the worship system of the Greek people. Their many different gods, their polytheistic religion, and they lived there for very immoral lives like many of the Greek culture did. 
a lot of sensuality and, and forms of, of self-indulgence and luxury and, and very evil in a lot of their practices. Now, it is in the midst of those dark things to these lost Gentile people living in darkness who do not know the one true God that a few disciples of the Lord now have a burden to begin to reach out to to go into these locations and share the Lord Jesus. Notice how these pioneer evangelists, if you would call them, are identified by the Holy Spirit there in verse 20. It just says, some of them who were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. That's how they're described, just some. Many were preaching to the Jews, but some felt a burden to actually reach the Gentile people. Now, to me, I find that insightful because take notice these who pioneer gentile evangelism which is going to impact the known world and bring the gospel to people like you and i even historically those who plant the church of it just says they weren't apostles from jerusalem they weren't the leaders and the pastors it wasn't the deacons from the church in jerusalem nobody it seems with official titles or positions they're just some just some men who knew jesus just some individuals who had a relationship with Jesus. In fact, they're not even named. You notice the Holy Spirit could have given us their names, but it's almost as if God like purposely discloses their identities. He doesn't even choose to tell us what their names even are. They were just normal believers, everyday believers who knew Jesus and knew the word of God and had the power of the Holy Spirit and developed a burden and felt inclined to outreach and minister to the Gentile people. And it says, as they came to the city of Antioch, they spoke to the people and preached the Lord Jesus. It says they spoke to them. That word spoke just means in conversation. That the idea is not necessarily were they hosting meetings and having a you know crusade type evangelism. They just went around and spoke to people. And in so doing, they were proclaiming or preaching the Lord Jesus to people. That is, I envision just having everyday conversations with purposeful intention to steer the conversation into spiritual topics. That as they worked in the marketplace or they did the things they did laboring in the fields or working in the different trades or whatever they were doing, that as they did those things, as they talked to people around them, they tried to turn the conversation to something spiritual, something meaningful. Perhaps they asked questions like, so do you have spiritual beliefs? What are they? Tell me what your spiritual beliefs are. And then as they would listen, perhaps somebody would say, oh, that's interesting. Um, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Well, since you asked, I do. I believe all men are sinful and that we need forgiveness of our sins. And I believe that God's remedy for that is he sent Jesus. And again, just a, in a conversational way, able to proclaim the Lord Jesus and tell people about the Lord and, and just evangelize in a very conversational way. Again, I like the fact as well that it says that they preached the Lord Jesus there, verse 20. They preached the Lord Jesus. That is, they didn't preach that people needed to reform their ways. They didn't preach you need to get, you need to get a little more religious they didn't preach particularly in any way uh, one specific church. They didn't preach their church or preach the, the personality or preaching of their pastors. or they Just they preached the Lord Jesus. They told people about Jesus because they knew that's what people need. 
That's what they need to hear. People necessarily need to reform their ways. Jesus will reform their ways if they come to know Jesus. They need to hear about Jesus. And again, just shows the great wisdom in the heart they had. Hey, we just want to tell people about the Lord. I look at this, I think, what a great model and reminder for us in our current generation if we want to see the Lord work. Uh, just the things that we see here. First of all, just a reminder, the Lord can use anyone. He doesn't need apostles and leaders and pastors. The Lord can use someone, just an unnamed someone, just someone who's willing to make themselves available to the Lord, someone who has a burden for a particular people group maybe or a particular you know, person, just some people with a burden and those who are willing to just make themselves available and say, here, my Lord. Send me, use me in my job, use me in my neighborhood and my contact and sphere of influence. And Lord, help me to just be purposeful to try when I talk to people instead of just kind of, you know, uh, kicking around everyday things that others talk about to just try and turn conversations spiritual and to actually have content meaning to what I talk about and to purposely try and bring up the Lord in conversations with people we talk to. And notice again, the method is very simplistic. Just speak to people. Just speak to people and tell them about the Lord. Tell them how the Lord's important to you and what the Lord did in your life and use those simple occasions that arise. Just a very beautiful thing to see how as the result of this, what incredible things happen. It says they went to Antioch speaking to the Gentile people, preaching the Lord Jesus. And look what happened, verse 21. Look at the result, the Holy Spirit records. And the hand of the Lord was with them doing these things, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. You know, since it was the heart of the Lord to outreach and minister to those Gentile people, as a result, the hand of the Lord was with them and brought great success and fruitfulness to what they did in their ministry work and in their preaching. It says that the hand of the Lord was with them. That speaks of just the direct involvement of the Lord. The implication there is his hand was personally involved, that the Lord of heaven was giving help and assistance to what they were doing as they were outreaching to this particular people group and as they were talking to people and preaching Jesus to them, the Lord said, I like that. I'm going to lend a helping hand. I like the fact that you have a burden for those people. I, I, that, that's in line with my heart. I want to reach the Gentile people. So since you're willing to do what's on my heart, I'm going to lend a hand. I'm going to make my hand get involved in that. I'm going to put my hand upon that and cause it, therefore, to experience fruitfulness and success. And I'm going to cause it to prosper with my divine power behind what you're doing because my heart is in that. And so, therefore, my hand is going to be behind it. Notice, because the hand of the Lord was with them, and that's the reason, because the hand of the Lord was with them, it says, verse 21, that a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That's simply a reference, quite frankly, to a lot of people getting saved. It's a reference to a bunch of people getting converted spiritually. And notice, as the Bible describes conversion, again here in the book of Acts, notice the description of both faith and repentance there. It says a great number believed, that is believed upon Jesus, and it says they turned 
to the Lord. That is, means they turned away from other forms of religion, other idols they worshipped. They turned away from living sinfully and selfishly, and they turned to the Lord Jesus and to his lordship over their life and put their trust and belief in him, believing what was true of the Lord and what he performed and could do for them. There was an expression of faith that brought, listen, a turning point in these people's lives. Something happened. There was a distinct experiential moment when people, it says, turned to the Lord. But there was a a definite turning point. And look, I want you to know this morning, it is the heart of the Lord for each person on this planet to believe upon Jesus and to turn to the Lord. And that's necessary for each person too. It's necessary that there come a spiritual turning point in a human being's life. You know, sometimes I'll talk to people, maybe you have as well, and they'll say something like, oh, yeah, I mean, I've been raised in a Christian home. I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm a, I was, I'm, yes, I've always believed. Well, that's great, but that doesn't mean you've always been saved. The devil's always believed too. Let that sit on you. The devil's always believed. The devil's accurate in his theology. But I don't think the devil's in right relationship with God. So to believe the right things mentally doesn't convey that we have turned to the Lord. That at some point recognizing our sinfulness and Christ being the Savior and that we are separated from God because we, though maybe moral or religiously raised or whatever, that, that still we, like every other human being, needed Jesus to die for us, to raise again from the dead, to ascend into heaven, that we, like every other human being, need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved and to have a turning point in our life. It doesn't just naturally happen. You can stand in a garage for four years. You'll never turn into a car. It'll never happen. You can sit in a church your whole life. You will not turn into a Christian. Gradually. You choose to become a Christian. You choose at some point to turn to the Lord. And that is what these people did is they heard the hand of the Lord was with them And ultimately, they believed there was a work of the Spirit. People believed and they turned to the Lord. Notice, when we step into a ministry that the heart of the Lord is in, then the hand of the Lord will follow. Great reminder. When we find out what is the heart of the Lord, then it seems the hand of the Lord will be with us in what we're doing. And the reality is, it's only if the hand of the Lord is with us in our ministry efforts in our preaching of the word of God and the gospel message, it's only if the hand of the Lord is with us that we will ever see people believe and turn to the Lord. It takes the hand of the Lord. We have to ask, Lord, if your hand is not with us, people are not going to believe and they're not going to turn to the Lord. We need your hand to be with us. Lord, we need you to put your hand upon what we're doing and we should pray to that end, I believe. I don't know about you. I look at verse 21. Wouldn't it be wonderful to experience in our midst, in our lives, among our church, what verse 21 says? The hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Who shouldn't want that? To see that unfold in our midst. So this powerful spiritual awakening causes a great number to turn to the Lord. And this now brings 
the planting of the church of Antioch. The, the first Gentile church, and we'll see this church of Antioch now, this predominantly Gentile church will now be the missionary sending church in early church history. It will now become the hub of other church planning throughout the known world. It becomes the place where the apostle Paul will actually be commissioned and sent out from by the Holy Spirit to go and bring the gospel and plant churches all over the known world. Interesting enough, the city of Antioch at that time was the third largest city in the world. The first was Rome, the second was Alexandria, and Antioch was third. It had a very large population. It was the center of a major trade route, a major business district, a lot going on there, kind of like a big metropolitan city, the idea is. There was a lot of wealth and affluence in Antioch. In fact, historians say that there was a four-mile stretch of road right down the center of Antioch, and the four-mile stretch of road was solid marble. Now, I don't even have solid marble countertops in my house. They paved road with marble. That's pretty fancy. There was a lot of wealth and affluence and, again, the excess of those kind of things. However, also in big metropolitan cities, sometimes that brings along a lot of excess of sin and unhealthy living, too. And Antioch was like that in its immoral activity and a lot of idolatrous worship. So, again, envision in your mind when you picture Antioch like a New York City or a Las Vegas. That, that was what this was in the ancient empire. But yet it was in the midst of that city and all the darkness and self-indulgence, the heart of the Lord was to send the gospel and to plant a church whereby a great work of the Lord could happen and it also could then become a powerful hub of ministry to reach many other surrounding districts as well. So verse 22 says, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Seems like everything gets back to the church in Jerusalem, doesn't it? Read that a lot. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So news of this great spiritual awakening among the Gentiles and the establishing now of this new church in Antioch makes its way 300 miles all the way back to the church of Jerusalem. And they authorize now and send out Barnabas as their representative to travel the 300 miles northwest up to the area of where Turkey would be today to go and check on what's happening to go and verify this work of the Lord and perhaps as well, I believe, probably to go there and just offer help to these many new believers spiritually get rooted and established. Now, as verse 22 mentions Barnabas being sent out by the Jerusalem church to go up to the church in Antioch, remember, Barnabas we met back in chapter 4. He then showed up again for us in chapter 9 there. And a few things we know about Barnabas, he was a very well-respected man of God among the church and among the leadership. We saw that Barnabas was represented as a person who was very generous and giving. We saw that in chapter 4. Uh, he was a man who proved to care about the Lord's people and the Lord's work. He was the one, remember, who encouraged the leadership in Jerusalem to accept Saul of Tarsus' conversion as being genuine. And nobody wanted to accept that Saul was the real deal and that he really was saved now in preaching Jesus. And it was Barnabas who came alongside and said, look, you need to be open, man. This guy's real. Give him a shot. He, the Lord's worked in his life. And he was that guy who kind of came behind and said, look, we need to give Saul a chance. 
The Lord's at work in his life, and it was Barnabas who encouraged them to receive Saul. He's proven to be someone who just has a very helpful heart spiritually. He wants to encourage people, and he demonstrates himself many times in the Bible as someone who just has real wisdom, just a very wise man. And so therefore, it is him who they designate in the church of Jerusalem as the right representative to make this journey up to the church at Antioch. So verse 23 says, when he came after that long trip and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. So as Barnabas arrives there, it tells us he can see this is an incredible work of the grace of God that began, and so now he encouraged them to remain yielded to the Lord. Now, verse 23 and 24, note a few things with me. First of all, notice the Holy Spirit's description that he gives to us of this man they designated to send into this work of the Lord. It tells us, the Holy Spirit does, of Barnabas, that he was a good man. It says, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. First of all, it tells us that Barnabas was a good man. Now, Jesus said, no one is good but one, and that's God. So what this tells me about Barnabas is he was just a man, apparently, that was in very close fellowship with God. Because for them to say, that's a good man, he had to be in close fellowship with the only one that's good, and that's God. He was just the kind of man who was filled with the presence of God, a godly man. No doubt he had a great heart. He was just faithful and solid. He was the kind of man that somebody would look at and they would say, that's a really good man. That's just a really good man. And this is what Barnabas had a reputation for among the people. Even God's estimation of him here is the Holy Spirit says this. We're also told of Barnabas that he was full of the Holy Spirit. That is, he lived under the influence of the Spirit. He was a Spirit-led man. The fruit of the Spirit was evident in his life. It was obvious that the power of the Spirit was with him in what he was doing as he walked and served. And as well, it says that he was full of faith. Not only full of the Holy Spirit, but full of faith. And that implies that Barnabas was someone who exercised great confidence in the Lord for things. He knew how to believe upon and rely upon the Lord to address things, to let the Lord work in things, to let the Lord work out things. Someone who is full of faith is someone who's not prone to striving in the flesh, trying to force things, trying to make things happen, trying to use human efforts and ideas and energy to try and make something happen, but instead says, you know what? Look, we're, I'm going to trust the Lord. The Lord's got to make that happen. The, the Lord and, and just how to, hey, whatever it is, I'm not going to force it. I'm, I'm going to just trust the Lord and, and how to just seek God and exercise faith. God will provide. God will come through. God will take care of it. And just someone who trusts and gives God a chance to work. That's the idea. You know, we look at that description and I don't know about you, but my heart says, Lord, make me more like Barnabas. Make me more like that as that description is so beautiful of him. And as we look for people to serve in the Lord's work, those certainly are some very important characteristics we should look for. should look for people who are just good individuals, close to God, people who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Those are the ones we want to see sent forth 
in the Lord's work. So as Barnabas arrives, look what he observes and how he responds to it. It says, verse 23, that when he arrives there at the church of Antioch, that he had seen the grace of God and he was glad. Now, I like that description. He saw the grace of God. As he came to that new church plant and all these people getting saved, and he says he saw the grace of God. The idea is as he looked upon what was happening there, it was evident to him that the favor of God was just at work, that the Lord was just blessing in an evident way. He could tell by observing this assembly of believers, this was a work of God. That it was not that they were able to have this really great mission statement or this fantastic marketing plan and that because they executed it so well, they've achieved this great success now. As if they just knew how to work the community and with the right dynamics and if we employ this and use that and work that and, and, and then ultimately, wow, look what we've created. Look what, He said, no, he looked at it and he said, this is the grace of God. <laughs> look at these people. These are people who were just weeks or months ago prostitutes and crooks and messed up people. <laughs> and now look at this. This is the grace of God. This isn't because anybody here is super talented or super intelligent or has got great insights. He, all this spiritual fruit, he's saying, this is just the, the grace of God. There's nothing more than the grace of God that's happening here. And I think this is a great reminder. As he saw it, he responded by just being glad and rejoicing that God's grace was at work. And look, let me just say, whenever we see great spiritual fruit happening in someone's life or among a church or whenever we see you know, people being saved, that should be honestly what we discern if we're looking correctly. We should discern, wow, this is just a work of God. This, this is just nothing other than the grace of God. It has nothing to do with anybody making this come to pass. The only reason for this happening is it's a work of grace. That's it, man. This is just a work of grace. And look, there are things that we can achieve in the flesh. Businesses succeed without the Holy Spirit. Okay, we do realize that, right? Businesses can prosper well without the Holy Spirit. Churches should not prosper well unless it is a work of the Spirit, and we can go, this is just the grace of God. That's, that's all this is. It's just God's favor, God's blessing, that the grace of God is causing it to happen and come to pass. So look what Barnabas does. Verse 23, it says, as a result of that, he encouraged them that with purpose of heart, verse 23, they should continue with the Lord. So seeing it was evident that this was a work of God's grace that had begun, Barnabas here wisely knew they needed now to remain seeking the Lord and to continue doing such. So he used his great ministry of encouragement, which he surely seemed to have, kind of like a spiritual coach this guy was. He just had a knack for encouraging people to go on in the Lord, to follow the Lord's plans and purpose. He just had a knack for that. So it says with purpose of heart, he told them that he is, is commitment. He says, purpose in your heart, be committed, make a dedication, Barnabas was telling them, to continue with the Lord. The idea is remain in right fellowship with the Lord. Continue with the Lord. Yes, you came to the Lord, but he's saying, now you got to continue with the Lord. You got to keep growing, he's saying. You got to make progress. You should develop spiritually and go further in the things of the Lord. And look, after we turn to the Lord initially, that's just the beginning, Salvation is just the start of a spiritual life. 
It's the starting gun. It's not the, okay, finally somebody got saved. They get saved, now they need to continue with the Lord. Once we embrace Jesus, that's the beginning of a whole new life, and we need to now continue onward in that relationship. An important part of a healthy, fruitful life for the Christian is continuance. Remember what Jesus spoke about in John 15? Jesus said, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Even as a branch can't do anything on its own, he said, neither can you unless you abide in me. And the word abide means remain, continue connected to me, Jesus said. I'm the sap of, of the life of God and the Holy Spirit flowing into you as a branch that lets you be fruitful. And he says, apart from me, you're not going to be able to do anything. The Christian life cannot be lived in the energy and efforts of our own flesh. The Christian life can only be lived effectively and fruitfully as we continue with the Lord, walking with Jesus, staying in relationship with Jesus, reading his word, giving his spirit the ability to work through our lives, not turning back, not turning away, but walking forward in a conscious intentional way that we continue with the Lord. You know, perhaps in some way your spiritual life's been a little dry recently. Are you continuing with the Lord? Maybe you came to the Lord, but have you been continuing with the Lord? Are you having time alone with Jesus every day? Are you consistently being among the Lord's people in worship and fellowship? And, and are you maintaining the relationship? That, that's important. And so Barnabas here, great encouragement, especially these newer believers. He says, look, purpose in your heart and continue with the Lord. And verse 24 tells us as it went on there, and a great many people, notice, were added to the Lord. So you might say as the result of a few things we see now, as the result of the hand of the Lord being with these people, as a result of the grace of God being at work among them, and now Barnabas, the Lord's instrument, ministering to them and discipling them spiritually, the result, the church was being blessed with genuine spiritual growth. It says there, verse 24, that a great many people were added to the Lord. There was a large increase in people being saved and deciding to follow Jesus. That church at Antioch was experiencing rapid growth at this time, a great, again, second reference, a great many people were being added to the Lord. Again, notice the Holy Spirit's descriptive language. Don't read over it quick. A great number were added to the Lord. Added to the Lord. The Holy Spirit describes people being added to the Lordship of Jesus, not necessarily added to the congregation, higher attendance in the service, not necessarily added as far as, hey, we need some more participants when we do functions or we need to get some more spiritual customers in. And I'm not diminishing that we shouldn't want to see numeric growth. Trust me, I want to see that more than anybody. I'm the one that lives with depression when it doesn't happen, not you. I'm the pastor. But what we should genuinely want to see is not more spiritual customers, more spiritual converts. People being added to the Lord, added to the Lordship of Jesus, people who are genuinely having an experience with Jesus and salvation and becoming followers of the Lord, now living their lives for the Lord. That's to be our biblical aim that we want to see people not just added to you know, who we are collectively as a group, but that our prayer is, Lord, we want to see people added to you in relationship that are now following you and living for you 
as the Lord over their life. Verse 25 says, Barnabas then departed for Tarsus at this time to go seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year. The two of them assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So it seems Barnabas wisely perceives, hey, this work and and ministry is growing here at the church of the Antioch. Uh, This is more than I can handle myself and, and I'm a little overloaded and to adequately keep shepherding and guiding the new believers and those who are there into spiritual maturity that he needed some assistance. And so Barnabas deducing that, he probably thinks and prays through, hey, who can I get to come help to lead and to teach here? And his mind zeroes in on Saul of Tarsus. And he says, perfect, that's it, Lord. Saul's the right guy to come and help here. Now remember, Saul was someone very knowledgeable in the scriptures. Saul was someone who had proven that he had a clear anointing to teach in his early ministry. And Saul was someone who we know specifically Jesus called to minister to Gentiles. So here's what's interesting. For quite a long period of time, if you remember, Where has Saul been off in Tarsus? And you might fairly say that God's kind of kept Saul in like a wilderness of obscurity for the past 10 years. You remember what happened, if I can refresh your memory, right after his conversion, he did some brief fruitful ministry, and then the religious leaders were so upset that their champion of attacking Christians was now telling everybody to become a Christian. And remember, there were all these death threats and they kept attempting to murder Saul and ultimately it became so intense, it says they sent Saul away to his hometown of Tarsus. And for the last 10 years, he's been dwelling in obscurity. He's been off the radar, out of public view, yet in all that time, God was preparing him for the onset of this fruitful public ministry that will now begin at this juncture in time when Barnabas comes and gets him and says, look, I need you to get engaged here. I need you to get involved. This is more than I can handle. So Barnabas travels to Tarsus. He seeks out Saul and finds him. No doubt he tells him what's happened. Saul, you should see, you should see what's taking place in Antioch and there are all these people that are in love with Jesus and, and I'm trying to do the best I can and, and would you be willing to come? And he just kind of explains the situation and beautiful to see. Barnabas senses help is needed and he wisely seeks out the right, clearly God-ordained individual. And at the same time, Saul, hearing of the need for help, embraces the invitation as, hey, this is the Lord's direction for my life. This is what the Lord wants me to go and do. So look what Barnabas and and Saul do with the church. Verse 26, again, it says, they assembled the church for a year regularly, and it says they taught a great many people. As they came there, you see what they did? They routinely assembled with the followers of the Lord, and what did they put their emphasis upon? Teaching people the ways of the Lord. Teaching the word of God, explaining the scriptures, guiding and grounding people in truth because they knew that's what these people need to get rooted, to become mature, to grow up spiritually and to develop. They spent a solid year with the focus and emphasis on biblical teaching because they knew that was what was most essential at this point to deepen their understanding. The Holy Spirit, I think, is probably showing us in this moment as this powerful church gets planted the importance 
of the value of the teaching of the Word of God and how that is so crucial to a church being healthy and ultimately becoming a great and fruitful church. Ephesians 4 tells us there in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Lord has given pastors and teachers for equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That that's the role of a pastor to equip, to train, to prepare, to educate the saints for the works of ministry that happen all week long as we're outreaching our communities and bringing people, it says Ephesians 4, into maturity spiritually. And in connection with that year of focused teaching, look what happens at the end of verse 26, the very first time something happens. It says, the people, the disciples of the Lord were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, various titles have been used throughout the book of Acts we've seen so far to describe followers of Jesus. We've seen believers, we've seen disciples, We've seen saints, and now here, this is the first time we're told that they were called by the title Christians. And how interesting, it wasn't a catchy title they chose for themselves. Hey, what do you think would be really catchy? Yeah, Christians. That, how about we call ourselves Christians? It actually was people in the unsaved world who were looking at the people following Jesus, and they called them Christians. Christian, that the I-A-N at the end of a word is a, is a suffix that means belonging to or associated with or of the party of. So of the party of Christ, belonging to Christ. That's what the word Christian means. It's a reference to being like Christ because of connection to Christ. The idea is people were looking at the disciples of the Lord and saying, you know, those people remind us of Jesus Christ. I mean, they just remind us of the Christ, what we've heard about him. They, they just represent him. They're so wrapped up in serving him. Look, here's what's interesting. The title Christians only used a few times in the book of Acts, but it seems to be, would you agree, like the favorite title that we take to ourselves as followers of Jesus. We probably tend to call ourselves Christians more than we do believers, disciples. The question is this, how well are we doing representing the title? Do we represent Christ well? The people look at us and say, yeah, that, that person is very Christ-like. Very much like Jesus Christ. That's the idea of what people are to be seeing as we refer to ourselves as Christians. So let's wrap up this last little vignette here in the story. It says, and in those days, prophets also came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Remember, prophets were those called by the Holy Spirit that had an office of speaking forth the word of God. And certainly in the Old Testament, in the early days of the church, it seems there were few designated individuals that kind of had that office as a regular ministry, prophets of God that would speak on his behalf. It seems nowadays that the way the Spirit of the Lord works in the New Testament describes that a word of prophecy at times can come to any believer who can speak forth a prophetic word to encourage in a helpful occasion. But some of those prophets, it says, came and traveled up to Antioch, verse 28 says that one of them named Agabus stood up and he showed by the Spirit, the Spirit gave him a revelation, he showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine, a time of starvation, lack of food throughout all the world, which Luke confirms it also happened in the days of Claudius. So Agabus shows at this coming time, somehow his spirit reveals it to him, and he informs the people there in the church, look, there's a great time where there's going to be a shortage of food and it's going to be very scarce and a time of economic hardship is going to come on the whole world, he says. And he forewarns the people 
of this global famine that's coming, and the event actually did come to pass. Luke confirms it there in verse 28. He said, this actually happened. Now, here's what's interesting. Look what the believers did as they got this prophetic word. It says, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea, and this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Take notice, due to the love and grace of God being at work in the hearts of these believers, do you see what they're motivated to do? They're prompted to send financial assistance to relieve the brothers and sisters in Christ back in the area of Judea who they've never even met before. They never even met those believers down in Judea, but something prompted their heart. You know what? That's our spiritual family. We got to help them down there. We need to do something to send financial relief and, and, and they know they're enduring hardship and struggling, so they sent a monetary donation to provide relief during a difficult time in the midst of their lives. You know, Warren Wearsby says, quote, the purpose of true prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to stir up our hearts to do the will of God. And here, think about this. The famine, if it was indeed throughout the whole world, that means the famine had to be affecting the church in Antioch too. But yet, their hearts aren't worried about taking care of themselves. Their hearts are inclined towards being gracious and helping others. I mean, this is a beautiful description. Perhaps, I don't know, maybe the church of Antioch was more financially sound than the church in Jerusalem. Maybe the believers in Antioch were just more wealthy, affluent believers, and so therefore they had the means, and they wanted to help the people who were in Judea, maybe that were in a harder place economically. Whatever it is, I'll tell you this, when the grace of God is at work in our lives, we will become less greedy and more generous and more giving. And we'll be concerned about blessing others and helping others around us. And I love how the financial donation was given. It says, each disciple, according to his own ability, gave relief. The picture there is according to his own financial ability. The idea is some gave more, some gave less. Each according to their financial status, each according to perhaps even their ability to trust the Lord in faith. And the money was given to help fellow believers. They were helping church members helping those who are family of God. Family should come first. And I love the stewardship as well. It says they sent the money to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Do you see the clear indication there of things like stewardship? There are multiple people involved. It was managed and sent with accountability and stewardship. And you know what? When the Lord's at work, one of the quickest ways to mess up what the Lord's doing is you start mismanaging money. You start mismanaging the Lord's money and he'll shut down a work real fast. And we need to understand every part of the Lord's work is sacred and we want to use it in good stewardship. Let's stand together. Let's pray.